The rest of you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 as we continue on in our study of this uh, book by, the, by Luke, great historian and missionary partner of Paul. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. Uh, we'll look at just briefly verses 1 through 3 this morning. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I hope you have your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's a, the words are up on the screen as well. You can read along as I read out loud. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This ends the reading of God's holy inerrant and inspired word of God. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, that was a short reading in light of uh, some of the lengthy, we've been reading whole chunks and uh, chapters of Acts in recent weeks. This week we want to, we're just focusing on these uh, three verses, but these three verses launch us into uh, a section in verses 13 and 14 that are uh, essentially what is known as the first missions trip. Now missions trips in the uh, church world, in the evangelical world, are something that you hear about a lot. You see youth students, right, out doing car washes, and you get letters all the time of kids raising support to go to Jamaica and other places, suffering for Jesus on the beaches of Costa Rica and places like that. Now, it, we, we, mission trips is a significant part of the, uh, the, the, the milieu of the evangelical world. We, we, a lot of us have experienced that either as, as high school students or college students or even as adults. In fact, how many of you have been on a mission trip in your life? Look at that. About half of you have been on a missions trip. Um, I've been on, uh, on numerous and several. It's been God's uh, gift to me uh, that I've been able to participate in those. They are good uh, for the church. Uh, they are sometimes good for the church overseas. Sometimes they are not. Uh, but what we see in Acts chapter 13 and 14 is what many people refer to or think of as the first missions trip. Now, it wasn't a short-term missions trip. It wasn't two weeks. It was more like a couple years in which Paul and Barnabas uh, travel around parts of the Mediterranean world sharing the gospel and planting churches. And so what we're going to be looking at for the next two weeks is this idea, this word that has become so familiar to so many people, at least in the church world, of missions. We're going to look at this idea for the next two weeks. What is missions? What are we doing when we say we're a church about missions and I'm a missionary? What, what are we saying when we say that? Well, missions, at least by the very definition of the word, means to be sent. The Latin word from which we get the word missionary means to send. And I would even, and this definition may be up there, but the way, the definition by which I'm going to be functioning under for missions for the next couple weeks is this. That missions is the sending of people, that sending concept, duly commissioned by the Holy Spirit and the church of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to teach people to obey all that God has commanded in order that churches may be planted in the midst of peoples amongst whom the name of Christ is not known, and God 
is not worship. Now, I'm not going to exegete every word uh, of that, of that uh, de- reference and that definition this morning, but what I am going to look at is that first line for the most part this morning, that missions is the sending of a people duly commissioned by the Holy Spirit and by the church of Jesus Christ. But before we can even look at missions as a dual commissioning, we have to see the, where does missions come from? What is the genesis of missions to begin with? And what I want you to see is this is going to be a, a, maybe not so much a God or gospel-centric sermon, but a gospel and God-surrounded sermon. And so we want to begin with God and see that missions flows out of who God is. Because we have a God who is a sending God. The ultimate sender is God, and in fact, that's what we see here in Acts 13, isn't it? Now, often we think of churches sending missionaries, But it is stated twice here, both in verse 2 and then in a verse we did not read in verse 4, when it very clearly and plainly states that Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit, that God is the one who sends out. God is a sending God, and in fact, God sends himself into this world. In John 20, verse 21, a, a, a verse that we will go back to on multiple occasions this morning, but it says this, This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room after he has been resurrected from the dead. He says to them, Jesus said, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible captures this progression as God is sending over and over and over again, sending redemption into the world. He sends angels, and he sends his law. He sends messengers. He sends prophets. He, prophets. he sends priests. He sends kings. And of course, he sends Jesus, the ultimate and highest form of sending. And this is what God is still doing today, that God's sending work, this sending act of who he is, this, this carrying out of his character did not end with Jesus, but it carries on, and the vessel through which God sends today is What? The church, us. Gregory Allison, who is a professor of historical theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this, that we must understand that it is a triune God who sends, that sins. This is part of his very nature, even within the Godhead. And in this order, first, the Father sent the Son. And then second, the Son obeys and is sent by the Father and becomes incarnate. And third, the Son sends the church on mission, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to go out in that mission. And so what God is doing in this world is he is raising up sending churches, ascending people who are both sent ones and senders themselves. And the proposition where I want to focus this morning and in, light, in, in part to for the next two weeks is that this is the type of church that I want us to be. This is, I think we are there in some ways, but we have a long way to go. But I want us to be a sending church. And so to that end, I want to call us to be a sending church this morning from this text. And I point out two things that we see from this text that would help us understand and help, us, and help me call you to being this type of church. And I'll look at it with two, two points this morning about what it is to be a sending church. First, we're going to look at the meaning of a sending church. And then second, we're going to look at the characteristics of a sending church. The first, we want to look at the meaning of ascending church. What in the world does it mean to be ascending church? Well, I want to say it this way, and I'm going to focus on two particular words. But ascending church means 
that sending is a part of our corporate identity. It is a part of our corporate identity. I want to work, look at those two words that should be in your sermon outline. Corporate and identity. Part A and part B. This is the meaning of being a sending church. First, let's look at the word corporate. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit sending individuals that you, you tend to think of people going like this, that I've heard, I've sensed the call of the Holy Spirit on my life, and so I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to be in campus ministry. I am called by the Holy Spirit to go into that neighborhood and to go to those peoples. And that is true, but what do we see here in this verse, in verse 2? Does the Holy Spirit speak to just Paul and Barnabas? No. Verse 2, it says this, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, who is the Holy Spirit speaking to in that sentence? Who is he calling to set apart for this work? He is speaking to the church. He is calling, and this is a command, to the corporate church. This is not a command to individuals. This is a command to the institution of the church. This is a commissioning of the church to Antioch as a whole, not as simply to individuals who willy-nilly decide they've heard from the Holy Spirit and we're going to do it on our own. Now, the reality is, and I've mentioned this already, but through though the Imago Dei, we are a sent people. God imprints on us this, this idea of sentness, and this is true for every member of Christ's body, that you're a sent people. But this is also finds its fullness in our corporate identity as a sent people. The power to fill the entire earth cannot be done, which is our mission, to fill the entire earth with the, the knowledge of the glory of God cannot be done by a few people, right? But this is a corporate calling. That if you're in the church, if you belong to Jesus, then you are sent one. Ross Hastings, who wrote the book Missional God, Missional Church, says this, that the church as one with Christ, not simply as disparate individuals, but as church as one with Christ, is God's primary missionary. God has one missionary. It's called the church. And so we need to see missions as not a task that a few people do, that a few people who have a special calling on, our life, on their lives, but it is a corporate identity that we all hold to and claim. So that's the first word. First, it's corporate, but second, it's an actually it's an identity, and let's dive into what that means. We are a sent people, meaning this is who we are. It is not simply what we do. It is who we are. In light of God being a sending God, and that's who he is, and this is a part of his identity, then it is no surprise that in John 20, verse 21, when Jesus says, I have been sent, and now I am sending you. Tim Keller says this, what Jesus says is, I am a missionary, and now all of you are missionaries too. And what he is saying is the shape of Jesus' life was sentness. He was sent into the, into the world. Jesus had a mission, and now he is sending us now. This is a part of our calling and a part of our being, and we are to model our life after his mission. This is now who we are. If being sender is part of God's character, and we are a people who are now united to God in Christ Jesus, we are now sent ones, and we are now senders as a part of our identity. Now, thinking about this, even in regards to our worship and our worship services. How do we end each and every one of our worship services? I stand up, and I get this. This is one of the most frequent questions I get about the weirdness of our church. 
And they go, what, what in the world is the deal with the, with the raising of the hands and the benediction and everybody else raises their hand at the end of the service? A benediction is a blessing from God's word. It is, a, it is an articulation of the blessing of what God says over you. Chris stated at the end of his prayer just a few minutes ago that God speaks over us, that he is pleased with you. And that the, the final word that we want you to hear is that God is pleased with you. May you see his face. May you know the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. But I, I, I was thinking about this this week, and perhaps there's a corrective that we need to make, because I, what I think and what I see is the vast majority of benedictions that are out there in the Scriptures, that are directly from the Scriptures, these blessings, that right along with them come a, a commissioning, a sending out that goes along with the blessing of God stating who you are. God says, I am pleased with you. Now go tell the world who I am. Think about it this way. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus comes to the, to the apostles, and what is, what's the first thing he says to them? Peace be with you. That's a benediction. That's how I end most of my benedictions. May you know the peace of God, that there is no more warfare between you and God. You are reconciled to God. You are right with God. But then he flows from that saying, peace be with you. Now I am sending you as I was sent into the world. It is a benediction connected to a commissioning. And this isn't just in the New Testament. This goes back to the church's calling way back into Genesis when God calls Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. When God calls Abraham, here's what he says. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the blessing or the benediction of sorts, the promise. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what I want you to see is part of our identity, that when God calls us and blesses us and says, you are my child, he also says, go and draw in other children. When he says, you are blessed, he also commissions us to the work of going to bless the world, to be a blessing to all nations. So perhaps our benedictions should add some commissioning aspect to it. And you think I would have learned this. Whenever Jim Little comes and subs for me and preaches, you may notice in his benediction, this is exactly what he does as well. I'm slow to learn. But perhaps our benediction should go something like this. To use the ironic benediction, for example, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit... You are sent ones. Perhaps that's how we should benedict and commission you each and every week as a people whose identity is as sent ones, as missionaries in this world. This is not simply a missional way of ending our services. This is a way of commissioning you. And this should be part of our liturgy that each and every Sunday that we will be a people who come in here wounded and worried and anxious and yet we come before the throne of the Father who hear his blessings over us and then sends us back out into our broken world to take that message. Our corporate identity is ones who are sent ones and who are centers. Senders. Brothers and sisters, we brought this up a couple of times. The church in the New Testament is replaying back some of the fallenness of the Old Testament. We've pointed back at various times, that, like we see at the day when at Pentecost, when the tongues come down to the peoples, and all the peoples who have been separated by languages come back together and united around Christ Jesus. But in much the same way, we also see that the church should be more like Antioch and not like Babel. 
What was the problem? What was the sin of Babel? The sin of Babel is the sin of the way many of us think about how we ought to do church, which is this. Let's just bring as many people as we can here and hold them really tight. Don't go anywhere. Just gather, gather. Why? Because it shows the greatness of how wonderful we are. Look at all these people that want to hang out with us. When in reality, what's the, what's the church of Antioch's attitude? You gather you to send you back out. We gather, we bless you to send you back out. That is the missionary method that God has called us to. Will we be an Antioch church, not a Babel church? Not a church that makes a great name for itself, but is more about the glory of Jesus Christ and therefore sends out. And so here's the question for us. I want to make this distinction. Are we going to be a church that sends or are we going to be a sending church? A church that sends see, sees uh, missionary support and sees sending people out to campus ministry as something, as this thing that, that, that the side activity we do. But a sending church is a church that sees it as an aspect of our identity. It's part of our DNA. That just as we gather to worship each and every week, that we are, we are scattered to be sent out to be missionaries. There's a difference from what we simply do to see who we are. And I want to point out to a couple practical implications for the church in regards to this, this idea of being a people who are corporate identity as missionaries and as sent ones. And the idea is this, there is a dual calling. There's a dual calling in the missionary work of the church. The spirit, you may notice this, that there is a dual calling between the spirit and the institutional visible church. The spirit speaks both to the church at large and he also speaks to Paul and Barnabas. The Spirit, what is it? What happens? Ultimately, the sender is the Holy Spirit who calls individuals to go and take the gospel to various places. But the church also has a role in commissioning and confirming and affirming God's call in the lives of individuals. That is a dual commissioning that is going on. There is a divine dimension that goes on in the hearts of men to be sent out, and there is an ecclesial dimension, which is, that's a big word for church dimension, that says, we see God's work in your life, and we think you should go. Now, there's a couple of applications for this, for the church. Now, here's how, here's how missions work normally happens in the church. Somebody gets a holy fire, a Holy Spirit fire that says, I want to see people saved in that nation or in that place or in that neighborhood, and praise be to God for that. But knowing what happens is they think about this and they get this calling individually and apart from the church. And then they go and they hear about some missions agency and they join themselves and connect themselves to some missions agency. And then they come to their local church, unbeknownst to us, that they have suddenly been called to be missionaries and preachers of the gospel. And, and they say, we would like you to support us. Now, I would say that's, there's, there's, that's not awful. There's worse things. But I would say that there's something better, and I have two applications or implications for individuals in regards to our calling as missionaries. First is this. If you are considering or believe that God may be calling you to missions work as a vocational ministry or to be sent out into a cross-cultural place, that you don't do that as simply between you and God. That this calling is not simply a you and God are talking about it, but that you go to the church and you get your institutional, local leadership involved early saying, I am sensing that this is God's call in my life. Would you train me? Would you equip me? Do you affirm that this is who I am, that this is what God is calling me to do? This is not just Christians willy-nilly running around and saying, hey, this is my, this is between me and God. 
Too often, in fact, actually we see this in, in, in our own polity here as a part of our church. If you want to be a pastor in our denomination, we have two particular callings that we say you have to have. So when guys are coming to intern at our church or at other churches and they come to our presbytery, which is kind of a ruling regional body, and they, they interview them and they say, why do you think you're called to ministry? What they want to hear is this. They want to hear an internal call and an external call. And in which what they want to hear is they want to hear that the Holy Spirit has called you. They have a sense of this, that God has called you to go into preaching or teaching or gospel ministry across the world. And then second, we want to hear that you've had an external call, which is somebody else out there besides your mother has said, you're good at this. Because part of the problem is so many times there are those who are getting into missions work and church work, and it's like the, Ameri- you know, the opening scenes of American Idol. I have, to, I have to go and examine people who have come to before our presbytery to preach and say, do I have the gifting of preaching? And they're actually at the final stage where they're being examined, they've been to seminary, they've done years and years of study, and they get up to preach and you're like, oh my goodness, I would rather watch paint dry than listen to this person speak. And you want to go, why did someone not tell him before this point that this ain't your gifting? But the problem is too often is simply, I, I've... I feel the Lord's calling me to this. And I want you to feel a calling to this. But you should also go to your institutional church and say, do I have this calling? Do I have this gifts? Do you see this in me? Am I living faithfully according to the gospel? The second, though, and this is where I want to put more stress, though, is the application for churches. For us as brothers and sisters, and particularly for the leaders in this church, which means if churches affirm and confirm what the Holy Spirit is doing, that churches should be actively looking and pointing out and setting aside those who may be called to gospel ministry in a special way. The vast majority of churches, what we, we, we outsource equipping. People from other churches have been raised up and they come to other churches and they raise support. I would not like that to be here. That if we're going to be a sending church, that we would see people raised up and equipped, and that the elders of this church and the people of this church would point to the various men and women in this church and say, you are gifted in that way. Go, therefore, and use your diaconal gifts there and there and there. Go, therefore, and use your preaching gifts and your teaching gifts and your administrative gifts there and there and there. That we would flourish and that we would bring these, these gifts out of people. That we wouldn't simply just look for other churches to do this and piggyback on them. And what they're doing. But if you're sending churches, the churches that actually raise up missionaries from within their midst. And aren't looking for other people to do it for them. See, for churches, what we need is a more robust understanding of what success is. You see, far, far too often churches, their view of success is how many people are in pews. How many people are attending the church? How many seats do you have in the church? And listen, that should be a measurement. If you read Acts, over and over and over again, it gives us what? Real numbers. It says 3,000 people joined the church. That is a good thing. But what I'm saying is we need more robust understanding of what success is than simply how many people are here on a Sunday morning. But there should be downline uh, ways of understanding success, which is are we raising up leaders to go, to leave, or to be, have influence on in our community, in our city, and around the world? The success, the success is not simply seeding capacity, but it's sending capacity, as one pastor says. But this would be the success measurement that we have as a church. So you're sending church when you've understood that it is a corporate act, 
And it's a sending church when we understand that it's not simply sending people off, but it's who we are. And that we live out of that identity to send out missionaries and to be missionaries where God has called us. So this is what it means, first and foremost, to be a sending church. But then I also want you to see that the Antioch church shows us and gives us a wonderful example of the characteristics of a sending church. What are the things besides people sending out missionaries and going out and doing evangelism and reaching their community? What are the things that are underneath that for a sending church? And I'm going to move through each of these rather quickly because there's a number that Paul gives us or Luke gives us in these few short verses that show us the characteristics of a sending church. You're going to move through them quickly. First is this. A sending church is first and foremost a worshiping church. When did they get the call to send Paul and Barnabas away? To send them out. What were they doing? Verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, there is an inextricable connection and tie between worship and mission. When people get enthralled with the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, when you know him and the profoundness of who he is, you want to tell other people about him. John Stott says this. He said, The highest missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather a zeal, a burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. When you are meditating on the glory of the Lord, there is something, there is something that must come to mind at this point. That it's inherent to our image bearers. That when you see something that you love, you want to tell other people about it. That when you see something glorious, you want other people to know about it. In fact, this is inherent to God's sending work. You see, in God's Trinitarian presence, he is one, but he is three persons. You know why God created man? It's because within the Trinity, there was a love for one another, and there was a longing for the Father to glorify the Son and the Spirit, and for the Son to glorify the Father and the Spirit, and for the Spirit to glorify the Father and the Son, that they said, we must create so that other things must know and see the glory of the other persons of the Trinity. And you actually see this, this same thing in the, in when, when people start having children. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and one of the questions we talk about is when do you want to have kids and how many kids you want to have. And almost ine- inevitably, they're like, you know what? We want to have like a good five years, ten years, just to hang out together. And then like two years later, you see them, and they're like five months pregnant. And you go, what happened? What happened to the ten-year buffer? Well, two things happened. One, they realized being married without kids gets really boring. And then two, they realize that they love the other person so much that they're like, you know what? I want to create. I want to see. I want to see what this person looks like recreated. And this is the same thing that happens in Christians. When they come to know, like that Trinitarian dance that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have, when you come to know the beauty of the Lord, you go, I want the people, I want others to know about the glory of this Jesus. I want them to know about the love of the Father. I want them to know about the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. i got to tell somebody. The lack of passion for missions in a sending church is so often due to a lack of passion we have simply for the glory of God. See, as pastors, I mean, there's a great illustration that I've heard that in regards to, as pastors, we feel like there's two kind of balloons, right? There's the balloons that, like, if I have a little kid's birthday, that I sit there and I blow up myself with my own breath. And because I don't have magical air, it just kind of falls, doesn't it? 
And as pastors, that's often how we feel like we're doing. All right, we've got, in regards to mission, we've got the generosity balloon, okay? Boom, pop that up. And we, oh, we've got the evangelism balloon, all right? Let's sit in and preach about evangelism. We've got the, the prayer balloon. Let's, let's knock that up. But then there's a helium balloon. If you fill a balloon with helium, what, is it, what happens? It leaves your kids crying because it takes off to the sky, and you don't have to pop it up anymore, do you? And this is what I'm saying is the, the, the helium for missions is the glory of God. And I can preach till I'm blue in the face about you should be generous and you should be prayerful and you I should do some evangelism every once in a while and you should actually talk to your neighbors. But until you get a vision and a longing and have the power of the Holy Spirit that points you and gets you a, an experience of the glory of God, listen, I'm just going to be doing this every Sunday. And so we've got to come to understand who he is. That's the motivating force for ascending church is the glory of God. It's a church that comes in week in and week out and worships and sees the, the grace of God displayed in Christ Jesus. But secondarily, the church is also motivated, and the type of church that sends out is a church that's loving. And I know that's, I, I couldn't come up with a better word. Uh, I know that that just seems too broad, but we're going to go with it, a loving church. There is a theme that runs through Acts that is so unavoidable. And I have brought it up over and over and over again, and that is this, that the love of Jesus so transforms people that when the gospel comes to them in Acts, that they are united into a new community with a new identity, no matter their socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, or national backgrounds. And what they do is they love Jesus so much, and they've experienced the love of Jesus in their own life, the fact that God would traverse the difference between a holy God and a sinner to come and be with us and connect himself to us, that we go, i got to unite myself to this person. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't smell like me. They don't eat like me. They're from a different culture than me. But I am united to them because of Jesus Christ. I'm going to communicate the love of God for them. And this is what we see in the Antioch church. I pointed this out a couple weeks ago ahead of time. You see the five, the names of the five leaders of the church in Antioch. We've got Barnabas, who's a Cypriotic Jew. We've got Saul, who's a legal, legalistic Jew is his background. We've got Manan, who's, right, we learned about Herod last week. We've got Her Manan, who's like friends with Herod. He grew up with Herod, and he's become a believer. We have a, a man from Niger. We have a man from northern Africa. That We have these different ethnicities, not just in the membership of Antioch, but in the leadership of the church at Antioch. That the love of Jesus Christ that they'd experienced had gone forth in such a way that they could actually embrace and be united together. You see, the church that actually becomes a sending church and that it has power to send all peoples is the church that in and of itself is united and is integrated in this way. Now, I don't mean integration in the exact way that's become in a socio-political term. But I, well, in some ways, it should be integrated not just black and white as we normally have thought about it. It should be integrated in regards to socioeconomic and age and racial and ethnic. And this is important for the church. Think about this in the gospel proclamation of when Paul and Barnabas go out and they go out to various people groups and people groups who have hated each other for, for centuries upon centuries and have been divided and united and they go, I, I, don't, I don't know, this seems like a Jewish religion. Is this, is this for me? Is this for me, a Greek or a Gentile? And they get to go, yes, you know how we know? We've seen it. We've seen it as men from Nigeria and men from Northern Africa and men from Israel and from Italy and from Turkey have joined together into one church. 
We've seen it. We've experienced it. Bill Hybels, who is one of the most well-known and famous pastors uh, in, in America, he um, started a church in, outside Chicago it's called Willow Creek Church and became, for a time, was the largest church in the entire country, had over 25,000 members. They popularized what has become known as the seeker-friendly model uh, of churches. And in recent years, though, he has come back, and they've done some studies about the long-term effects of their particular models of doing churches, and they've learned a couple things. That they said he would, in a leadership talk that Heibels did, they would have changed two things. One, they would have focused on long-term discipleship that would have led people not just for um, conversions, but to baptism and teaching them how to obey and follow Jesus. The second thing he said is, I would trade the size of my church for a multicultural, multi-ethnic church any day. Because he said in, in, in America, with the history that we have had in this, in, this, in this issue, and frankly around the world that all countries and all nationalities have had in this area, is he said that that would proclaim the gospel far more profoundly than having 25,000 members in my church. And so brothers and sisters of King's Chapel, listen, I don't necessarily know what this looks like for us. I do not know. And like, this doesn't mean, like, like there's not a whole lot of Koreans that live in in, in Carrollton. There's not. It's a, like 0.3%. All right? I, so, and I don't know exactly, but what it should look like is we should reflect at some point the ethnic and racial and socioeconomic diversity that is actually around our church. As opposed to looking really in pretty much just one way and just one socioeconomic group. So a church that is appropriating the love of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is pushing in this direction. And I don't know how we get there, but dadgummit, it cannot simply be a, a, a word that says, well, I'm not a racist. And that cannot be the extent of our ministry in this direction. It has to be more than that. The mission of God depends on it to be a sending church. All right, I've beaten that to death. So when a passion for the glory of God and a church that becomes loving because they've appropriated the gospel of Jesus Christ when they begin to have a passion for these things, to see people of all nations come to know Jesus, to know the glory of God, what happens next? Well, what do they do? They seek God's face for missional direction. What are they doing? They're not just worshiping. It says they're also fasting and praying. And I want to focus in particular what they're doing in fasting. The church in Antioch was there doing this. When, when people fast primarily in the Bible, they are looking for God's wisdom and God to speak and for God's will as to the direction for their life. That they're saying, I'm going to go without food here for a season because one, I want to hunger for you, God, more. And second, I want to hear about where you're calling me to go. In other words, what the church was doing is not only did they have a passion for the glory of God and a love for the loss of the world of all peoples, but then they said, you know what? God, we're going to get on our face and we're going to say, where are you sending us to go? They're actually going to ask the dangerous question. That God, that you would use us, that you would call us out, that you would send us, that you would send people from our midst to go and reach the world with the gospel. And so this is why people talk about the importance of prayer and fasting. Almost all the history of revivals in the world, they have all been predated by a passion for prayer and for fasting. Churches that become excited about evangelism are churches that pray together, that get up early and are passionate for prayer and fasting. And in fact, this is what Jesus did. When Jesus gets commissioned at his own baptism for ministry, when John the Baptist baptizes, what happens immediately after he does that? Where does he go? 
He goes into the desert for 40 days. Now, there's a couple things going on there theologically. First, he's connecting with us and our humanity. He's reliving the Israelite experience. But second, he goes out and he fasts and prays for 40 days. What is he seeking? The face of the Father in regards to his mission on earth. And what we see throughout his three years of ministry and at various times, Jesus will disappear. Right when things are getting hot, right when things seem to be going great, what does Jesus do? He goes out to the mountaintops, he heads out to the trees, and he hangs out for a couple days and hears the words of the Father saying, this is your mission, stay on track, the mission is the cross. The mission is the cross. So if we're going to be a church that's going to be a sending church, we must be a seeking church, actually asking to hear, seeking the Father's face, saying, would you tell us where we're going to go? And then finally, if you have a passion for the glory of God and a love for all peoples, and you've sought God's will in your life and for us as a church, what comes next? God gives you the call, what do you do? You sacrifice. You sacrifice. You sacrifice to fulfill the mission that God has given you. Sacrificing churches. These are the type of churches that become sending churches. You notice, who do they send? I know the Spirit says fairly, you know, like very clearly, send Paul and Barnabas. But you know what they could have said? You know what? We have two brand new believers over here. They ain't helping a whole lot. We can get rid of them. We can send them to Cyprus. We got these two people. Man, we're not even sure why they're here. You're going to have these guys, God. No, what do they do? They send, they send Paul and Barnabas. These are the all-stars. These are the most gifted. These are the high, most highly trained. The, I, I want to be careful because this is not across the board. But from my personal experience, at least with our denomination's missions board, we tend to send the socially awkward overseas. We tend to send those who actually can't, don't seem to have the actual gifts. You know, people go through seminary and they get ordained and then we go, you know what, nobody's hiring these people. Because maybe they weren't gifted, and so you know what they do? They raise support and go overseas. Now, that's certainly not across the board, but historically, what actually what the church would be doing is sending the best and the brightest. Because the church that wants to take the gospel to the ends of the earth dies to take the gospel forward. We die to send our missionaries out. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm just going to pick anybody. No, he sends the best, and the church says, that's great. We're good with that. Now, here, where do we get the motivation for this? Because I just pounded on us. I'm doing this. Be a worshiping church. Be a seeking church. Fast more, church. Love people better. How do we become a worshiping, loving, seeking, sacrificing church? I'll give you a story. Two, two different shoe salesmen. They both go to Africa. The first one, for his company, he gets sent to Africa and he's going to sell shoes in Africa. After three months of being there, he cables back to his company, his shoe company in America, and he says, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm on the next boat out of here. Why did no one tell me that no one here wears shoes? And so the company, the shoe company, sends another guy, he goes over, and three months later, he cables back, and he says, listen, send me every shoe that you can spare, beg, borrow, and steal shoes, and send them over here, because no one here has any shoes, it is the greatest sales force field that I've ever seen. Now, what's the difference between those two people? Because there's Christians who have the same view. There's one Christian that looks at the world and goes, you know what, those non-Christians, look at them and their sin. They're not Christians. I don't want to hang out with them. I don't want to spend time with them. I don't want to give my resources to them. And then there's a the person who goes, look, look at this world that is dying. It is a field white for the harvest. I want to be part of that. 
What's the difference between those two Christians? I'd say this, it's whether they've tasted grace or not. It's whether they've experienced the glory of God found in the grace of the gospel. The motivation for missions grows out of a deep and personal experience of the gospel of God. You know how you want to, you know how you experience the glory of God? You experience it in the face of Jesus. When his glory was manifested on the cross, when you see the glory, the glory of our Lord, who he would leave his throne above and come and what? Seek and save the lost, you and me. When he would come after those who desperately needed him. Man, recently, I close with this, a man um, heard this story. A man was given a new car. He had a brand new car. And, and he was at a, at a shopping center. It was a really, it was a pretty sweet car. And this little kid came up to him and was awing at his incredible car. And the kid asked him where he got it, and he said, my brother gave it to me. And the kid was aghast. Your brother gave you? He's like, did he owe you something? Did he beat you up? Little kid. Did you do something for him? And he was paying you back? Did he owe you this? And he said, no, he just gave it to me for Christmas. Just as a gift. No requirement. And the little boy's eyes got really big, and he said this. I wish... I wish I, what do you think he said? He said, I wish I could be a brother like that. And you think he'd say, I wish I had a brother like that. Here's the reality for, for us brothers and sisters, that if you're going to be a brother like that, like that little boy, if you want to be a brother like that, who gives and sacrifices greatly, you first have to realize that you already have a brother like that, who gave his life away for you, who sacrificed, who sought, who loved you, and who glorified the Father in order to win you. That's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it send us out to the nations. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that um, missions is not something we have to conjure up in ourselves. But it is an outpouring of our love for you. And so God, what we ask for in this moment, more than a guilty conscience, and more than just a sense of, yeah, I should do that. But Lord, what we long for is to see your face to see the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel to come to know you as the glorious Father. That, Lord, you would come to, that we would gaze upon you. As David said in Psalm 27, the longing of our heart would be to be with you in your temple, to gaze upon your beauty. God, would you give us that experience in this place? Would you give us that experience at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning when we get up to read your word? Would you give us that experience as we head out for work, that, Lord, we would day in and day out seek the face of God, and that from that, you would give us a longing for the world to know you. We ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.